see if I can get centered here. Well, good evening. It's funny how Wednesday night always comes. Uh, we start on Sunday morning, and uh, you know, and there's been times when I, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, that's before I got in my 50s. So this works better for me now. <laughs> the uh, traveling every night, that's for a younger man. Uh, I can still do Sunday morning, Sunday night, several hours, come back on Wednesday night, uh, then I can regroup. So I don't, I, maybe I said this on Sunday morning, but um, since I was here last, I'd finished an interim uh, at Quail Springs. They've called a pastor now, and his name's Steve, Stephen Rummage, and uh, he's been there two Sundays, I think. So that Sunday, the next Sunday, I started an interim at First Baptist Church Midwest City. So um, who knows how long I'll be there, but um, two very different situations. Um, Quail Springs seems to be one of those places where everything is happening and they're moving and there's an excitement and everybody's enthusiastic about what's happening. Then um, they've been growing like crazy. And um, then go to Midwest City, and I've been interim at both those before. So that was my second interim at Quail. I was interim there when they called Hans. That's been about 15 years, and then I got to go back, and I was interim at First Baptist Midwest City 17 years ago. I finished it 17 years ago when they called Mike Tigner. He stayed 17 years. So I'm back there uh, for the second time. But in, in looking at some of their numbers, uh, in the 1970s, they, they were running... Uh, 1,100 in Sunday school, getting real close to 1,100, over 1,000. And um, there's probably 200 now in the worship service. And um, so both of these churches need uh, a pastor. They need an interim pastor if their pastor leaves. It's just a very different situation there. So uh, you might pray, as you all know what it is to be without a pastor and be searching, um, they're in that situation. They need, they need the right man there very badly. Um, they're aging, and uh, so I'm going to do what the Lord will allow me to do there, but uh, it's just two, different, two, two very different situations. I'm glad to see uh, how healthy this congregation uh, seems. So with that, let's get started. I think we have three churches to do tonight. We only did four in several hours on Sunday, but, you know, I kind of know where the end is, and I'll get there. So we're in Revelation chapter 3, and we're to the church at Sardis. So we need to talk about Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So now thinking about the church at Sardis, I call this one, if you look on your notes there, I think I call it the, if, do we still have those? Those notes were still out there, Jim. Yeah, so everybody should, did anybody not get a copy of the notes uh, they were in the entryway there as you come in. Uh, so I've given you a little, I've given you a title and some of the background information, but I, I call this the church that fell asleep. That'd be one way to describe it, or maybe the church of the living dead. That might be another way to describe it. But, but what I find is we, we typically look healthier than we really are. I mean, we try our best to give the best impression. When you see somebody once a year, like I do you guys, you know, I want to put my best foot forward. So, I mean, I wear my sport coat tonight. I don't always wear a sport coat on Wednesday night. I mean, I've got my best Chuck Taylors on tonight. These are the clean ones my wife got me for Christmas. I've got the older pair that I've been wearing for a couple of years. They don't look as good. I, I broke out the good Chuck Taylors tonight. I'm really trying to impress you guys. But 
I remember um, my, my 1978, it was in the fall, we'd just gone back to school, and um, I came in from school, and I'd sometimes stop and play. I'd get off the bus early, a few stops early, and go and we'd play football out at my friend's house. That was the time when nobody freaked out about that. My mom knew I was probably down the road playing with my friends, and so there was no concern and there was no reason to be. On that particular evening, I'd stopped to play. I'd probably played an hour and a half, maybe two hours. And I went, by the time I got home, uh, my mother was sorry because my grandfather, my papa Kelly, I called him papa, um, had been by to see me. And he lived in the same town I did, but we didn't see, I didn't see him that much. I was much closer to my mother's uh, family than I was to my dad's family. But I loved my papa. I just didn't see him as much. But he had been by to see me. He'd come by. Uh, he'd been in town for something. He was a farmer. He'd been to, town, uh, been to town. He'd come to the house, and he wanted to see me that day. And he didn't do that very often. That was rare. But I'd missed him. He'd waited as long as he could. We didn't have cell phones. She couldn't call me and tell me to come home. And he'd left. So she talked. She said, I'm sorry you missed him. He wanted to see you. She bragged on how good Charlie looked. His name was Charlie. And um, he said he'd see you soon. So that was like on a, I don't know, Tuesday, but within a week, he was, he, he, he was a farmer, he had bees, and he was carrying honey into a market there in my hometown, and he just had a heart attack, died on, on the spot, carrying in the honey. And um, my, my mother had commented on how good he looked. You just, what you couldn't see when he came by the house that day, and what is my, my, Nanny Kelly, I called her, what she couldn't see was that he had a heart disease uh, that was about to take his life. But there was nothing about him externally that would indicate that. He, he looked healthy. And, and, and here I am before you tonight. You're probably thinking, man, he looks good for 53. He doesn't even look like he has any ailments whatsoever. And if you talk to Levi, my son here on the front row, he could tell you, oh yeah, dad's got all kinds of problems. Um, I, I've had a little bit of a heart issue in the last, in, 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 within this year where I've got an arrhythmia, they call it. So my heart beats a little out of rhythm about 2% of the time. That's what I've discerned from wearing a monitor for several weeks. Uh, and we did all sorts of tests. My heart is incredibly healthy. I've been a runner most of my life. But there's an electrical issue. And... Um, not, not exactly certain what's causing it, and there's really nothing. I take a baby aspirin every day. That's, that's what I'm doing at the present time. But I'm feeling good, um, so I'm not do, as far as I know, I'm fine. But, but I do know that's there. I have had some issues with that. And uh, did I mention I'd had a, I, I had a calf strain? Uh, I had to take three weeks off running recently, and I just started walking, jogging a little bit, I did two miles Tuesday, yesterday. Walk for five minutes, jog for five minutes for two miles. Um, so hopefully, and it didn't hurt too bad, so it's better. But I was out three weeks. I mean, I was, I was two and a half miles from the house and heard something pop in it. And, uh, and it was a cold, brutally cold, windy Saturday. So I drugged this leg back home and took three weeks off. And, and so I've never had a calf strain in my life. Here I am, calf strain. 
what you won't see because my gestures won't be wide enough to do it, but if I gave a gesture high and just move back the least little bit, I've got some sort of rotator cuff tear. I don't know that it's a tear, but it hurts like a knife in there if I get it in the wrong motion. I know Levi and I went out and we were going to pass the football, which we've done plenty of times, and just, ah, just right there. And couldn't do it. So, so we were actually, he was walking, we were walking, jogging, passing the football. So I just had to do this the rest of the way. That's as much as I could do. And so I might look reasonably healthy. I got, I'm not as healthy as I look, I think. I don't feel as good as I think, <laughs> you might think I do. I think that's true of churches. I think that's true of denominations. Sometimes we look healthier than we are. And here's just some numbers, thinking about our denomination, Southern Baptist. Uh, I looked up some of these things, and uh, most, a couple of these numbers are from 1617, but the rest of them are just the past year. We have more than 50,000 churches that identify as Southern Baptist, 15.7 million members. Now, if you're, if you're thinking about that as a medical chart for a church, that sounds pretty healthy. That's a lot of churches. That's a lot of members. More than 5 million uh, on any given Sunday morning uh, are report, reported to be in worship attendance in Southern Baptist churches. So that sounds pretty strong. Uh, more than 254,000 reported bad baptisms last year, the last year full year that was reported. 254,000. Well, that sounds pretty good. Sounds healthy. Um, overseas missionaries... So International Mission Board, 3,667 missionaries. North American missionaries, 5,262. So you're looking at, you know, um, what, 8,000, almost 9,000, right at 9,000. 691 new churches planted. Sounds healthy. More than 9.5 billion total receipts and more than 462 million given to the cooperative program. So all that sounds like impressive numbers. You know, if, if you're thinking about showing the health of a denomination, like the medical chart would look good for, by all those numbers. And yet, there are some signs that we might ought to take note of um, that might reveal signs of disease. A few years ago, the North American Mission Board appointed a task force that did a study of sort of decline or not decline in the SBC. And, and he, the fi findings were... The Southern Baptist Convention sort of, by the 1950s, had hit sort of a plateau, but then grew and then reached sort of an apex in the 1970s and stayed fairly consistent until the last 20 years, at which time we've seen a downward trend in things like membership and baptisms over the last 20 years. So I called my friend Hans Dilbeck, who I know would have the numbers for Oklahoma Baptist. Because when you're thinking about, when I'm thinking about what's a healthy state convention, not just the national numbers, but how about our state? And I think Oklahoma is as healthy a state convention as you'll find. We've had good leadership, really fine leadership, uh, for as long as I've been know anything about Oklahoma Baptist, and we continue to have really fine leadership, and we have good pastors, and so I would think that Oklahoma would represent the best. Of, of Baptist life in terms of these kinds of numbers over the last 20 years. And so Hans told me uh, 
that in terms of membership, Sunday worship attendance, and baptism, baptisms, which he thought those were all important indicators of what's going on in the state convention, over the last 20 years, we are down about 1.5% a year in all of those categories over the last 20 years. He told me the co-opted program giving is down 14% over that 20-year period when adjusted for inflation. Now, that's a bit troubling. Now, that's not hit the panic button, but it's to say maybe there's some issues we need to be examining to see what might be going on, like finding out maybe you have a little arrhythmia or you got a calf strain or you go to rotator cuff issue, things that need to be attended to. And so I would say there are many thriving, growing Southern Baptist churches. I've been blessed to be part of some of those. There are also some sick, diseased, and dying churches that are Oklahoma Baptist churches. And bigger than that, nationally, SBC churches. And it's not just the Southern Baptist Convention. Other denominations are struggling with even greater decline. So what might we point to? Well, I'm not the person to ask all the, about all the what we might should be doing and those kinds of things. But a couple things come to, to mind. I would say central to some of this is just a loss of interest in evangelism. Now, we talk about evangelism. I said on Sunday morning, Baptists love evangelism when somebody else is doing it. But when you start finding about how many people actually share their faith, how many people actually personally in the course of a year might share their Christian experience, share their faith with someone else? And, and the numbers you get when you look at, like, the American Culture and Faith Institute, they found that 25% of those who identified as Christians said they believed that Christians have a personal responsibility to share their faith. Now, I'm wondering if that might not be high, uh, because who would want to say no? But only 25% said yes, that they thought Christians did have a personal responsibility to share their faith. So, so I would say... It sounds like a tried and true, we don't, we don't care enough about evangelism, but, but maybe there's a problem in just our feeling the responsibility to share our faith. Just share your faith with people when the opportunity presents itself. Then I just saw this story when I was first thinking through this particular church. I was getting ready to preach uh, this, this particular passage at Quail Springs. That story had just, was just breaking that Sunday morning in the Houston Chronicle. And it said that the story revealed 20 year, in the past 20 years, interestingly, that was over the same period of this period of decline. This study was done by the Houston Chronicle that over the last 20 years, 380 Southern Baptist church leaders were accused of sexual misconduct. Now, this is reported. This was what they were able to find because it had been reported so you, you think there might be more, leaving more than 700 victims, or at least individuals who claim to have been victimized. And the fact that so many churches and so many church leaders had been warned or told, someone had said this happened, and so little action had taken place to address those problems, I think says that there's some disease in the body. And... The sad reality, I'm afraid, is that we've been all too ready to call out the sexual sin in the lives of people outside of our churches 
and not so ready to identify it when it's in our own midst. It, it's, a, it's a little bit, I don't want to overstate it, but a little bit of we've been trying to take the splinter out of someone else's eye in this regard um, when maybe there's a beam in our own. Now, I think good is going to come. I already see from, from some, a good number of Southern Baptist leaders that, that action is going to be taken. And if someone's slow to agree to address the problem, I think grassroots kind of movements are going to say, we've got to address this problem. We've got to have some means of reporting this. It won't be perfect. Everybody won't participate. But we have to start somewhere. And I hope that when someone claims to have been victimized, we'll be much more open to hear them out and call the police. I mean, that's just, if someone reports some kind of sexual abuse of any type, you call the police. That's just what must be done, or else nothing will probably come of it. I would say, take for example, the church at Sardis. They probably look very healthy, but something else is going on inside. So let's look at it. Here's the opening, chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? Now, what do we know about Sardis? It's about 40 miles south of, of Thyatira. So if you think about, we started with Ephesus, we moved north to Smyrna, we continued to, do, uh, to move north to Pergamum, uh, and then we started to move sort of uh, not so directly north uh, with Thyatira. Now, with this church, Sardis, we're, we're moving now south. And we're, we're going to begin to move back towards in the direction of Ephesus. It's not going to make a full circle, but it's going to make more than a semicircle. So we're about 40 miles south of Thyatira. It was a, it was a wealthy city that looked invincible. It, sits up, it sat up on a hill. I, I got to go to the valley below. I didn't actually go up to the city of Sardis. It's not very well excavated. But it was a city that looked invincible because on three sides it had natural cliffs that went up about 1,500 feet. And the only then way that you could enter into the city was heavily fortified and gated. So, I mean, it looked invincible, and yet it had fallen at least twice. Once uh, to... Um, to the Persians under Cyrus the Great, and later to Alexander the Great, and then it had fallen a few, to a few smaller leaders. And it looked invincible, and yet it had fallen. And one of the stories that a historian writes about is the way that it fell in one instance. Now, this was neither Cyrus the Great or Alexander the Great. This was a smaller invasion. But it fell, and here's how it fell in this instance. One of the soldiers was looking over one of these natural cliffs and his helmet fell off. And he decided, I better go get my helmet. So he exited out one of the secret exits or entrances and got his helmet and went back in the entrance of which, it, of course, he was observed by some of those down in the, you know, waiting to see how they might attack the city. And they ran in the opening that they saw him walk through and the city and opened the gates and the troops marched in and the city fell. Now you'd think you fall once like that, you wouldn't fall again like that. And yet it had fallen multiple times and every story had something to do with people who were caught off guard or did something like 
going out an exit, a secret exit, to retrieve their helmet. Fascinating. A lack of alertness was something this city was known for. So, who's writing? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars of God, the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. You remember that from the vision that we talked about on Sunday morning? There was, the, there was the reference to the seven spirits and then the seven stars in his right hand, which I said could either be the pastors of those churches or actually angelic guardians of those churches. And they have authority over the churches, the seven churches, but they're in his right hand, which says he has authority over them. So that's the one sending the letter. It's the exalted Christ. Now, what's the message? I know. I know your deeds. You have a name, living. I mean, that's pretty literally what it says. You have a name, and that name is alive or living. Now, your translation might say something like, you have a reputation for being alive, but, but it's rather literally just you have a name, living. So this is apparently what they say about themselves. They're the church of the living. Now, you think about, you can name your church whatever you want, right? How about Life Church? That'd be the similar thing. You have a name, Living. Life Church. How ironic would it be to call yourself Life Church and be dead? What if the only thing you could say about a church is what they called themselves and that proved not to be true? Like, you ever seen a church like called Fellowship Church? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be something if you went there and people didn't greet you? Or Unity Church that splits. You don't think that's ever happened? Harmony, in fact, I know of a church. There was a Harmony Baptist Church in the county where I grew up, and guess what happened to them? That's right. They got in a fight, and half the people left and started something else. And isn't that, Wouldn't that be awful? And that seems to be exactly the situation they're in. They have a name. They may call themselves living or alive or live church, but what's the reality? You have a reputation, you have a name, alive, but you are dead. So, what should you do? How about wake up? And isn't that interesting that in a church that had a history of a lack of alertness, that the message to them would be, wake up. That maybe the history of that city in some way reflects something of their spiritual um, need here. To be more alert. To just be alive. To wake up. Now, I don't have all the answers about here's how you know a church is alive. But I know the kinds of things that we see in these, to, as he writes to these seven churches. I know what he's asking them to do and to be. I know some of the characteristics of a church that is alive. Just from looking at these seven churches, one of them would be holiness, that they are willing to repent of their sins and be holy. That doesn't mean they're perfect, but they are willing to repent. And if you're not willing to repent, that wouldn't be a church that's alive. So the willingness to repent, to deal with sin, and be holy. I think endurance would be another mark of a church that's alive. A church that will endure, that will persist, even though there might be challenges. Over and over again to these churches, he says, I know your endurance. And that's part of what he affirms about them. 
I, I know your perseverance. I know your endurance. I know that even though there are challenges, you might be persecuted. You might be poor. There might be false teaching in the area, but you endure. There's something to be said for that. The alternative that, to that is to quit, give up. The, the, the ability to endure, to face challenges, and to keep going with faith, I think is a mark of a church that's alive. The willingness to confront false teaching, I think, would show life in a congregation. How about love for Christ above all? What was the problem with the church at Ephesus? They didn't love like they did at the first. We might say they'd lost their first love. Well, what would be the mark of a church that's alive, that's living? Well, they've not lost their first love. They're growing in their love for Christ. And that might be another one, growth. You know, he commends the church at Thyatira that your works are greater now than they were at the beginning. Like they're growing in grace. So, wake up, he says. You're dead. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Now, that sounds a lot like what we've heard him say already to the church at Ephesus when he said, remember, repent, and return to your first love. Remember what it was like when you still had that passion for Christ. Repent of your, that you've fallen from that and return to that. So here you get a similar, remember, he says, verse 3, remember, therefore, what you received. And whenever you get that language in the New Testament, it seems to always refer to remember the, the good news and the story of Jesus that has been handed on to you that you're supposed to be then handing forward. The tradition, the gospel, the story. And, and we hear this multiple times. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. I think here is a good Paul speaking about what you have received and what you are to then pass on to others. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That is, Christ died according to the scriptures, he was buried, Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to the disciples and to many. There's the tradition. That's what has been passed on to you. Now remember that. You're dead. You've, you've lost memory. You've forgotten what was handed on to you, what you received. Now remember it and hold fast to it and repent of the fact that you've forgotten. This is what he says to a church that seems to have, in some ways died and what if they don't repent he says in verse 3 latter part of verse 3 but if you do not wake up I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you now, doesn't that sound familiar Jesus talking about coming like a thief Matthew 24 43 and 44 he says to from the Mount of Olives and during Passion Week he says there but concerning that day and hour no one knows but if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. 
Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. When generally does a thief come? Well, certainly when you're not at home. But what would be the most likely time for a thief to come, nighttime or daytime? Nighttime would be more common because it's dark and people are asleep. So wake up. And then he uses the image of coming as a thief. Sounds like judgment here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4, For you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And I think the image there is not like, you know, a thief coming for the precious jewels, that is, the true believers. That sounds like that's more of a judgment, a warning. That if you're not awake, if you're not alert, uh, it doesn't sound like that's something to comfort you. So wake up so that you know uh, when he's coming. And then Revelation 16, 15, later in this particular book, he says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments on. Because if, you're, if your garments aren't on when he shows up, you'll be exposed to shame. This is a culture of honor and shame. And so to be caught naked would be shameful. So be awake, alert. And then the affirmation in verse 4 Yet you have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their clothes, who've not got their garments dirty. And garments here, whenever you see garments referred to uh, in, in a context like this, it speaks of your spiritual condition. So if you have soiled or dirty garments, that speaks about your spiritual condition. If you have white garments... That says something about purity, holiness. That would, that would be someone who's awake, alert. So you just start looking in the book of Revelation where it talks about white. And white, the color white appears 14 times. Oftentimes it's associated with garments. So if, if you look in chapter 4, verse 4, here's that throne, that scene of the throne room in heaven. He says, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. And had crowns of gold on their head. So you see the reference to being, to being dressed in white in 4.4. And then look, look at 6.11. Here's the scene. It's the, the opening of the seals. Uh, the, the seals that uh, on the scrolls. And the fifth seal, verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? These are the martyrs. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little while longer. Again, I think you can see something about how that indicates a, 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 a living spiritual condition, even though they are dead. Uh, chapter 7, verse 13. Then one of the white, elder, white elders, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then 1914, 
about to finish up this little journey through the white uh, robes. The armies of heaven were following him. This is like the heavenly warrior in battle against the beast. And here are the armies of heaven following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And, um, and then, no, that's good. I think you get the idea. Uh, so here is the image of white garments as showing your spiritual condition of being alive. Even the martyrs who've given their lives because of their faith and their testimony are dressed in white. Now his, his affirmation here to the church at Sardis is, you have a few in Sardis who've not dirtied their garments. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Now what's that say about the rest of them? You have a few who are still wearing the white. Um, doesn't that sound, even though that is affirmation, that's not strong affirmation. There's a line from Shakespeare that makes me, reminds me of, damned by faint praise. You know, there's this stupid commercial on right now, and I don't even know what it is. Maybe it's a, it might be Geico or something, but, uh, but this person's getting a tattoo, and, and, and it's like, uh, what is it? You're, uh, I'm one of the, you know, I'm one of the tattoo artists in this city. You mean one of the best tattoo artists. Oh, yeah, something like that. And it's just, you know, it just downplays uh, anything that's, uh, you know, particularly, particularly good. Um, well, well, here is this affirmation that you mean there's a lot of people there who haven't soiled their clothes? No. No, there's just a few. It's not high praise, but it is something. It's more than Laodicea gets. And then in verse 5, uh, we get the motivating promise. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. So here, dressed in white, that's part of the motivating promise. The second thing is, that person's name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Now, there's several books that come up in Scripture. For example, in Psalm 139.16, there is a book that contains all of the, everything that will happen in the life of a person. That's the way the psalmist describes that book. It's Psalm 139.16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me. Now, that's not really the book of life. That's just a book of all our lives. Show something of God's sovereignty over our lives. Malachi chapter 3 verse 16 talks about a book of remembrance where they're worried that God's not going to remember their good deeds and Malachi says oh don't worry about it there's a book where all the deeds you've done are going to be recorded God's not going to forget but the third book and most importantly is a book of life where the names of those people who are part of the people of God where their names are written and Revelation speaks about it in Revelation 13 8 all who dwell on earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 17, 8, And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. And then chapter 20, verse 12, he says, 
Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. And then lastly, 21, 27. So we're almost at the, uh, at the end. In the next to last chapter, the last verse, 21, 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's the motivating promise to those who will stay alert, who are wearing the white garments. Uh, it is that your name will not be blotted out of this book of life. And then finally, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and angels, that, that Jesus will claim you as his own. He will, he will say, this one belongs to me. He will not be ashamed of you. Um, Sounds like what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, I think chapter 10, that if you're not ashamed of me in this life, I'll not be ashamed of you before my Father. Um, you know, I got my, my Levi's 13. And occasionally, he has the opportunity to introduce me to some friend that I don't know from school or from somewhere, basketball or something. And the fact that he will not just ignore me sometimes, that he'll actually say, this is my dad, I take that as he's proud of me. Now, don't tell me anything else. That's how I'm taking that. The fact that he's introducing me to somebody, that's this is my dad. Even if there's not a great deal of enthusiasm in his voice when he says it, if he just says this is my dad, or this is my dad, whatever it is, I take it as a sign he's not ashamed of me. They're just walking right by, that would feel like he was ashamed of me. Those are good moments when your children seem to want to introduce you to their friends. They're acknowledging you before their friends. They want to say, this is my dad. That's a good moment for a 53-year-old. That moment can't compare to Jesus saying, this one's mine, to his father. So that's the motivating promise. And then whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now we get the church in Philadelphia, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, now they only get affirmation. It's all good. He says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. And you, and you have to look at Isaiah 22. There's a little section there uh, that describes, in fact, let's, it's probably worth turning over there because you'll never get what in the world he's talking about here if you don't look at it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 22, and it might be in your notes there, but um, this is during the reign of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, so we're 8th century um, B.C., and the Shebna was the king's treasurer, but because of his arrogance, he's being thrown out and Eliakim is replacing him. So he's going to be like treasurer of the court. He's going to be um, an administrator in the house of the king. So here's what it goes. Beginning verses Isaiah 22, 20. In that day I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. 
I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. That's what the administrator would have. That's the one who sort of has oversight over the household of the king. You'd have the keys to the kingdom in a sense. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. It speaks of his authority, of his sovereignty, of the one who has the key. In this case, he uses the language of Isaiah 22, 20. These are the words of him who's holy and true, who holds the key of David. So Jesus now is the one being shown to have the keys. What he closes, no one can open. What he opens, no one can close. I know your deeds, he says. So here's the message. I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. That's always an image of the gospel, of the opportunity of the gospel to go forward. Paul, multiple times, talks about an open door was given me. And it's always with reference to the gospel going forward. So they have the opportunity for ministry, for gospel ministry. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. So the second affirmation, one is they have this open door that he gives them. Two, they've kept his word, they've kept his name. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not. Remember Smyrna on Sunday night? He talked about the synagogue of Satan. I think that's a place where Jews gather to worship. It's a synagogue. But these Jews reject Jesus as Messiah and are persecuting the Christians. So it's not a synagogue of God. It's a synagogue of Satan. These aren't true Jews. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So to your opponents... This is the third affirmation he gives them. The open door, you've kept my word and not denied my name. And three, I will vindicate you. Your enemies will, at some point, someday, they will bow down as a sign of respect, not of worship to you. And and I will force them to acknowledge that you are mine. I will vindicate you. And then he says in verse 10, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, there's endurance, which is frequently one of the affirmations, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which I would take as judgment on that day of the Lord. Verse 11, here's the fifth affirmation. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And he's already promised about the victor's crown. Uh, to Smyrna, and here he makes that promise, that pledge again. Now we get the, uh, the motivating promise in verse 12. To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. So what's a pillar? Um, a pillar is someone outstanding, someone who's significant. Paul says in Galatians 2.9 that Peter and the other pillars of the church. So it's something that's important. But when you're talking about a pillar in the temple, uh, the temple is the place where God's presence dwells. To be a pillar in the temple means you will dwell forever in the presence of God. I think that's the picture he's trying to paint. 
and I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on them my new name. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that brings us to church number seven. So here is to the angel of the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was a city in the Lycus Valley. There were three cities there. There was like a triangle. Not, not quite the research triangle, but it was a triangle. So you had Laodicea. To the north, about six miles, you had the city Hierapolis. And to the east, about ten miles, you had the city of Colossa. And that was a densely populated, very important area commercially uh, and for a lot of reasons. For one, Hierapolis, and I've, I've been there, I've been able, it was eight years ago. I think I was telling you that it was about five years ago. It was eight years ago because one of the pictures popped up on my timeline uh, this, just since Sunday. Said it had been eight years since I'd been there. Um, but uh, when I was at, La when, what was I? I got distracted by the fact I'd been to Laodicea. Uh, when, I was when I was there at Hierapolis, we saw these hot springs, natural hot springs. And that's what all the hotels there bragged about. You can come and soak in these natural hot springs that we have. Uh, to go along with the hot springs, there were also these um, oh, the sodium uh, baths. It was like soaking, soaking in Epsom salts. It was salt water, hot salt water baths. And some of them weren't the hotel. These were just out naturally. You could go as part of the tour and you could take your shoes off, roll your pants up and go walk, wade out in there. And, you know, I guess if your feet were hurting, it'd be good for them. I mean, everybody used to soak in Epsom salts. I mean, at least my grandmother used to, that was her remedy for almost everything. I said that somewhere else recently, and an elderly woman came up to me afterwards and said, I soaked my feet last night in Epsom salts. So maybe some of you all have recently. But you could do that at Hierapolis. So this became a place like sort of like Palm Springs or something like that where people go to retire because they could soak in those hot springs. Supposed to have healing quality, rejuvenation. So that was to the north. To the east was this city, Colossa that was known for its cool drinking water, natural springs. And, and here's Laodicea sort of situated in this triangle between these two cities. And Colossa was a, known for its eye salve, and, or Laodicea was known for its eye salve and its commercial trade and its banking. It had lots of things going for it. And it was situated here between these two cities. The one thing that it seemed to lack was a natural water supply. But if you go there, you can see all these aqueducts that the Romans had built so they could pipe the water in. So with all that, he says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler, or actually I'd translate the beginning of God's creation. So this is from the exalted Christ. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now here's how we often treat that. Like hot is good and cold is bad, I'd rather you be lukewarm than be cold. 
But cold's dead, but I'd rather you be lukewarm, or I'd rather you be cold than be lukewarm. Like, like I'd rather you be cold than just, you know, closer to hot. That doesn't make any sense. And I don't think that's what he's saying. Both cold and hot are good here. The hot springs from Hierapolis were refreshing, rejuvenating. The cold water from Colossa was refreshing and rejuvenating. What do you do when you get an injury? You might put heat on it, but what else might you put on it? You might put ice on it. Cold is good for it. What about when you're thirsty? Nothing more rejuvenating than a drink of cold water if you're thirsty. But here's Laodicea that's situated between these cities, and it doesn't have the hot springs of Hierapolis or the cold drinking water from Colossa. And so the city's water supplies reflect something about their spiritual condition. They're neither refreshingly cold or rejuvenatingly hot, warm. They're just lukewarm, tepid. And the result of that, I don't know if you've ever taken a drink of just tepid, maybe salt water or, you know, give me hot tea or cold tea, not just kind of room temperature. But think of something that sort of causes the gag reflex. Something that makes you want to vomit. And that's what Jesus says this church does to him. Sort of invokes that gag reflex. Makes me sick. Now there's no affirmation here. This is the message to them. You're tepid, and it makes me sick. So there's a, there's a real complacency here spiritually. The second thing is he says in 17, You say I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and don't need a thing. Well, isn't that great? How self-sufficient are they? We have everything we need. We're rich. You remember the church that we talked about at Smyrna where he said you're poor, and yet you're rich? Financially, materially, they were poor, but spiritually, they were rich. Now, to this church, he says, you say you're rich, that you have wealth, and you don't need anything. Well, materially, this was a city that was doing quite well, and it's very likely that that they didn't need anything. Well, the problem with that is you become so self-sufficient that you don't even recognize that you need God. That's the danger of our wealth in the United States. I know I'm going to get a meal tonight. When I got up this morning, I knew I was going to get three meals today. Four if I really wanted one. I could have come for the one here, and you'd have given it to me free. You think about, in, at the time when they received this, the general situation would be people lived in such poverty that they were worried if they were going, most people worried if they would have the next meal. They didn't know if they'd eat three meals or two meals that day. So if by God's grace you got a meal, you would be grateful. When you said grace, you would really be grateful because you didn't know if you were going to get a meal. We have to almost, you know, I know I'm getting a meal after this tonight. We're going to stop and eat somewhere. So when we thank God for it, we sort of have to engineer a prayer. Well, I thank you that you gave me this job so that I could make enough money so that we could stop and eat. But it still feels like, well, do I really need God to get that meal? I mean, the restaurants are out there, and I've got money in my wallet. 
I'm not sure when we say grace, we are as grateful as if we didn't know if we were going to have food today. There's something about having what you need that you start to believe you can make it without God, and it creates a self-sufficiency that is dangerous spiritually. So he says, you don't even realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's your spiritual condition. And the saddest part of all that for me is when he says, you don't realize. Would it be possible to be in such an awful spiritual condition and not even know it? Think you're just fine? Think I'm good with God. It's all good. But the truth is, you're poor, wretched, miserable, pitiful. That might be the saddest part of all. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can be rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. So here's, here's the remedy. Buy gold from me since you got so much money. And that's a call to recognize your spiritual poverty. And it doesn't matter how much gold you have, it won't meet your spiritual need. You are spiritually poor. And then when he says about, get white, I've got the white garments, get white garments from me, recognize your spiritual nakedness. That you, you have nothing without God. Is it possible that you can wear a, let me see what I've got here, Hart Schaffner Marks. My grandmother always wanted to, that was the, that's what she thought you had to have to have a real nice suit. She's been dead now for years, I still remember that. You can, you can have on a nice Hart Schaffner and Mark suit, sport coat, Christian Dior dress, and be naked before God. And then, by salve to anoint your eyes, recognize your spiritual blindness. And yes, they were known for their eye salve. This was a, like a medical triangle with the springs in Hierapolis and the eye salve at Laodicea. But it's to recognize your spiritual blindness. And here is the good news of the gospel. We are poor, but Christ has the gold. We are naked, but he has the white garments. We're blind, but he has the eye salve to heal our blindness. Then he concludes, 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. It says, despite their spiritual condition, their, spiritually, their spiritual poverty, their spiritual nakedness, their spiritual blindness, Jesus still longs to have fellowship with them. And he stands at the door and knocks. Now, this isn't really an evangelistic image here. This is a church. These are believers who are out of fellowship with him and he wants to have fellowship with his people and so he's standing at the door and knocking you remember the Holman Hunt image the light of the world that painting of Jesus standing at the door with the halo and there's something genius about Hunt's painting there's no knob on the outside the door has to be open from inside 
He longs to have fellowship with his people, and he stands at the door, and he's knocking on the door, but he will not kick the door down. But if you'll open the door, if you'll repent, he promises we'll share a meal together. Reminds me of the prodigal son coming home or the marriage supper of the lamb at the end of Revelation. Now he's going to come back. He's going to come again. And something tells me when he comes that time, he's not going to knock on the door. He's going to kick the sucker down. And it won't be for fellowship. It'll be for judgment. Hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches.